This morning, uh, I told you last week about um, getting pulled over. That was fun. And uh, not stopping at a stop sign, all that kind of fun stuff. But I figured my, while I'm on a roll, I might as well keep telling you stories that I probably shouldn't tell you about myself. Um, I, I like a bit of a prank. Anybody else like pranks? They're kind of fun. Maybe not. You like them as long as you're pulling them, not as long as, as, long as you're not receiving them, right? Uh, a good prank is a lot of fun. And I, I, my dad used to have a license plate on the front of his car. Uh, it said instigator. He earned it. Uh, it's kind of the way my dad is. He, he likes to instigate a little fun and a little uh, trouble here and there. And I, I learned from the best. And uh, I, I wasn't necessarily the one who was always going, all right, I've got this devious plan and here's what I'm going to do. I was more the idea man who would go, you know, it'd be really funny. I was, I'd tell somebody else, That's, let's do it, let's do it. And then I'd just kind of follow along, right? It was kind of that nice way of doing it where you're just kind of like, I, I had the idea, it was technically my idea, of, I'm the instigator of the situation, but I didn't actually do it. And so in college, uh, I had a, the buddy, actually I was on a, an RA staff, okay? I was an RA in college, we were in the apartments and the houses, and it was a co-ed staff, guys and girls, because there were girls' houses and guys' houses and girls' apartments and guys' apartments, and, and so we kind of worked together to monitor those areas, and so it was kind of fun. We had a really good group that was tight-knit, and we had a lot of fun together, but uh, one day, my friend Kent, who was on staff with me, we had this little community center where people could come pick up some food or some toilet paper or whatever they needed for their apartment or house and kind of hang out and do homework, and we were hanging there. I was with my boss, Jason, and Kent rolls up in his car and parks out front and leaves the door open, and he's running to get something. And we talked to him for a minute, and then he goes on in. But he's left his car running and the door wide open. We knew he wasn't headed anywhere. And so I had one of those moments where a devious thought crossed my mind. <laughs> and I said, you know, Jason, we should totally just jump in Ken's car and take off because he left it wide open for us. Jason's like, being the good boss that he was, let's do it. And so we hopped in, and uh, we hopped in Ken's car, and we took it not far just around the corner, just off campus, we had one of the girls' uh, houses where there was one of our RAs that lived, and they had a garage in that house. And so we, uh, they, we told them we were coming, and she gladly opened the garage up and let us park Ken's car inside, and we gave her the keys, and we walked away. And so um, it was kind of one of those moments where you look back and go, I probably should have done that, but I did. And uh, it was kind of this fun moment where Kent quickly was like, okay, I know you guys have a car, what happened to it? And he figured out who had it. And it was fun. It was this brilliant, beautiful moment where all of a sudden, I think because he contacted the girls to get his car back and they refused to give it back and were going to hold it hostage, all of a sudden it wasn't my fault anymore somehow. Even though it totally was, he just was out to get them back, right? This began the great prank war of the RA staff. And so it was the lovely idea of the girls' houses and the guys' apartments, and the RAs, the guy RAs and the girl RAs, and there was this back and forth because all of a sudden now Kent's got to get even with the girls for holding his car hostage, and so he, I think he removed some tires from vehicles, which was an interesting story, so that when they went to drive their cars, they couldn't, kind of blocked up. Not, not all of them, just one, you know, something like that. And, uh, and then the girls would come back with, like, I don't remember. They weren't very good at it, and I'm not going to lie. And so they would come back with something, and the guys would be very devious and say, okay, well, they... They did something to us. Now we've got to retaliate, right? And so there's this back and forth. Ultimately, the girls lost pretty badly. But uh, this great prank war kind of going back and forth that I started, and I, I feel like, no, I really don't feel that guilty because nothing really devious happened. No one's feelings were hurt. Everything at the end of the day was all fun and games. And when we play those kind of jokes on people, whenever someone pulls a good prank, our initial reaction, our immediate thought is, I'm going to get even, right? 
I, like, that was a good one, you got me, but now I can't be the one who gets got, I've got to be the one who gets. Now, maybe not, maybe that's not your mentality, but for a lot of people, we immediately say, you know what, you got me, now i got to get you, and you're hatching the next plan that's going to one-up them. Now, some people, again, like in this case, don't necessarily have those devious thoughts in their mind, those, those devious plans that make it better than what was just done to them. But they try their best, and they try to get even. And that's all fun and games, and everybody had a good time, and we all laugh about it later. There might have been a few roommates in, who were innocent bystanders who didn't love it so much. But all in all, in the end, everybody had a good time. But sadly, in our world, there are moments when people have that same kind of devious thought. I'm going to get even. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to put them in their place. They deserve this for what they've done. And it stops being a game, right? It's not just a fun little prank thing between friends where everybody's friends and everybody gets along and everybody's buddies. But we have this mentality that I can't be the one who was got. I got to be the one who gets. At the end of the day, I have to be the one on top. Last week, we talked about that shaky pedestal of building up an image of ourselves, us being seen with favor by other people, God seeing us with favor, other people seeing us with favor, other people looking at this image of who we've created ourselves to be and seeing and liking what they see. And so because we're so worried about maintaining this good image, we don't want ourselves to be left on the low point, right? And so once again, we're talking again about this sickness, this sin, this evil that works its way into our life, where we feel like by one of the ways we can keep ourselves on the pedestal and keep ourselves built up and keep our image intact is by tearing down the image of someone else. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea of giving, getting even, this revenge, this vengeance concept that we see in Scripture and right here in the beginnings of Genesis. But before we dive into God's Word, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I love you so much. And I am thankful for this morning. And I'm thankful for the people that we have together with here this morning. I thank you for the community and the body that you raised up around us that just gives us encouragement. And Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to be that system of encouragement and love and support for one another. And Father, in addition to just encouraging each other through life and everyday practices, Father, it's beneficial for us to look at your word together and to share our thoughts and to wrestle through ideas and, and to kind of seek your face as we dwell in your word. And so this morning, as we just open our hearts and our minds to you, I pray that you would be glorified and lifted up and that we as a body would be encouraged and grow together in our efforts to seek your face, that you would reveal yourself to us in a very real way, and that again this morning you would be lifted up. Father, I just pray you'd help me to get my rambling thoughts and ideas and, and maybe agendas out of the way, Father, and just let your word and your heart speak this morning. I love you. In the name of Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen. So Genesis chapter 4. We were there last week, and like I said, I know we're going to get through 11 in the next couple weeks, and that seems like we're going to rush, but it'll all be okay because it all kind of makes sense because real soon here you'll start to see we're going to get into some genealogies and some interesting stuff that you're all hoping I skip over anyway because, let's be honest, genealogies, that's fun stuff, right? We'll read one of those here in a little bit. But for now, we, we left the story off last week with Cain and Abel, and if you remember, we, we were talking about the fact that Cain brought this offering of the, the plants and the fruits and the things that he had grown from the ground. But he just brought some of what he had. Abel, however, his younger brother, brought fattened calves. He brought the firstborns of his flock. He raised animals, and he brought the best of what he had. And God had regard for Abel's offering, but he had no regard for Cain's. He, 
He was delighted with what Cain brought. He just didn't have any regard or, or thought necessarily to what Cain brought. And therefore, Cain is angry and, and feels guilty. He feels frustrated. He's aggravated that his brother is elevated to this position, and he's not. And this loving moment where God comes into the picture and says, Listen, you have the ability to do what's right. You do. But right now, sin is knocking at your door, and it's waiting to devour you. Don't let it consume you. Don't let it win. You can take control over this moment. So that's where we kind of left off. We didn't talk too much more about what happens next last week. But right here, starting in verse 8 of chapter 4, it says this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So this sad moment that we've maybe heard before where Cain, in his anger and his frustration, he lets it rule over him in this desire and this means of seeing to just feeling the overwhelming frustration and anger that comes in disappointment in himself, disappointment in the situation, frustration and anger that his brother was shown regard and he was shown no regard. He loses control of his emotions. We don't know what their conversation looked like, what he said to his brother, but as they walked in the field, it got the best of him and he kills his brother. Now, I'm not going to lie. I've got a sister that I grew up with. My, my, My sister is about three and a half years younger than me. And uh, she would be happy to tell you as well that there were moments of our life growing up and probably still exist a few moments in our life growing up uh, where we wanted to knock each other out, right? I I think there's something special about siblings where you have this amazing ability to love and yet this amazing ability to just want to, ah, they bring out the worst in you sometimes, let's put it that way. And we sometimes brought out the worst in each other. We frustrated each other to no end. And I have been so aggravated with my sister at times I couldn't see straight. And I get that. But I can honestly say I've never been to this point where I feel so angry and so frustrated that I wanted to kill my sister. And I read this story, and I think of this moment, and I kind of wrestle with it. What is it that brings Cain to this point where the regard for his brother is so low, And his concern for his brother's well-being is so low that he's able to give in to this. Sin is at work, right? We said that his parents had this moment where they blamed each other and they blamed the serpent for eating the fruit in the garden. They they pointed the finger and said, well, I I would have eaten it, but that wife that you gave me, she made me eat it. She gave it to me. She told me to eat it. And, And Eve says, well, it was that serpent that you gave me. Or that, not that you gave me. That was that serpent that was in the garden. He gave me the fruit, and he, he told me to eat it. It was okay. And we point the finger and point the blame. Again, in, an, in a desire and in a, this way, we try to build up a, a better image of ourselves. right? We try to make ourselves look better. But one of the primary ways that it's easy to keep ourselves up on the pedestal, because we know that's a shaky pedestal. It's hard to always make ourselves look good, especially in this moment where Cain has made just another mistake another sin, this other great offense that knocks him down that much lower. For him to sacrifice yet again to make himself look that much worse than he already did, the only thing that's going to keep him on that elevated position is if his brother is not around at all. Do I think that Cain consciously thought about this whole concept in his mind? If I eliminate him, I'll look like the better brother. No. 
but ultimately in a desire to keep himself feeling better about who he is, in this effort to make some sort of sense out of what's going on, in a desire to protect his own image, in a desire to fuel what's best for him and what makes him feel best, he lets out in anger and kills him because, again, he's trying to feed that animal of taking care of himself. And when he does that, he's devaluing the life and the value and the goodness of another one of God's creations, another one of God's children. To the point where he has such little regard at this point that he loses it, and in his own anger and frustration, he kills him. Cain has disregarded the value of his brother's life. Now, here's the thing. All of us have had moments in our life where we feel like someone deserves something, right? You see on the news someone's doing something terrible. You see someone's doing something bad, and you go, you know what? They deserve whatever's coming to them. They did such a horrible and atrocious thing, they deserve what's coming to them. I remember several years ago, whenever the news came out that Osama bin Laden had been found and killed. Remember the parties and the celebrations and people dancing in the streets? There was such a feeling of he deserves this moment, what he gets. He deserves the punishment that's coming his way because of the horrible things he did. And we're all happy that he got what was coming to him because of the horrible things he led and did. There's all these emotions and feelings that we get wrapped up in in this world where we like to focus in on what somebody deserves. And this story isn't really um, different in that regard. If we continue to read in verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, if we stopped there and we said, all right, man, Cain, you got off pretty easy. You killed your brother in anger and frustration. And God is going to cut you off from the ground, so it's going to be hard for you to grow things. Instead, he's going to make you wander, and he's going to make you pick up your tent and keep moving. And you're not going to have a settled and established home where you plant crops and always have a place to stay. You're going to have to keep wandering and living off of other things. And, and, and like I would think, wouldn't you, that that's a pretty easy, like getting off pretty easy? That, like today, if someone killed their brother in cold blood, we would want a lot heftier sentence for them, Yes? But if we keep reading, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Whoever finds me, Cain says, will want to kill me, because they know I deserve that kind of death. They know I deserve that kind of punishment. I feel like I've been cast out of God's sight. I feel like I've been cast away from a home. I've lost things that are valuable to me. I lost control and I gave into the anger. Now I deserve death. I deserve this kind of stuff. And Cain says what he thinks he deserves. What's beautiful in this next moment is Cain is ready to judge himself. He's ready to throw the book at himself. He's ready to say, this is what I deserve. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here's the thing. Cain says, if someone sees me, they're going to kill me. And I think part of him kind of longs for that. I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel like I'm, everything in my life is a wreck. And it would be better if someone just killed me because that's probably what I deserve. And God says, no. 
In fact, I gave you a punishment. I gave you what I think is there. And if anybody else takes matters into their own hands, anybody else holds up the sentence and says it's theirs to have, my vengeance will come on them seven times over. Because I already sentenced you, I already punished you, and I said what's going to happen here. There's this picture being painted here that it doesn't matter what Cain thinks is good or evil. It doesn't matter what Cain thinks he deserves. What matters is what God thinks is the right punishment, what God says he deserves. And anyone who says that they know what justice is, anyone who says they know what is right or wrong, God will deal with them himself seven times over. That's a pretty intense picture. There's this sense that we feel like we know what's best to judge other people and how to tear other people down and how to bring them down and how to build ourselves up and what's right and what's wrong and who should be up and who should be down and where everybody should be in this platform game of high and low. But this story continues on in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujel, and Mehujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal, and was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Now, again, I said we would get into these genealogies. I promise I'm not going to keep reading all of them because I know some of you are like, wait, who's who and what's going on and what just happened? I'm so confused. Basically, Cain had kids who were a little bit down the line, and here's this guy named Lamech who for some reason we're getting details about. Lamech took for himself two wives. And in the midst of taking two wives, he started to have these other sons, and here's who they were. And we get this weird little picture that I think continues to reinforce this theme we're talking about, this idea of vengeance and where vengeance lies and why it's important, because the next little part here is important. If we, we kind of glaze over genealogies and we start to tune out, there's these little nuggets every once in a while that we miss, because I get it. Every once in a while, like, he was so old when he had this person, and there was a bunch of names I can't pronounce, and it's easy to let our eyes glaze over, but right here in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This guy has taken for himself two wives. He's kind of doing things his own way. He's straying from the norm of what we were given in the beginning. And here's this first indication that this guy has taken for himself two wives, and he's doing his own thing. And here he declares to his wives and children, listen up. This young kid, he wounded me. He thought he was tough. He thought he was cool. He wounded me, and I showed him I killed the little runt. And my vengeance, my revenge, what I have to dish back is seven to- 77 times. If Cain was seven times, he's looking back at his grandfather and saying, look what Cain did. He's looking back and remembering, and where Cain might have felt guilt and shame, Lamech feels pride and arrogance, and anger, and frustration, and evil continues to seep in that much more. That little guy thought he was something special to come and wound me, Lamech. No, I put him in his place, and I destroyed and killed him. My vengeance is 77 times. He's taking this as a moment of pride to build himself up by 
destroying the image and the picture of somebody else. This keeps evolving and keeps changing, and this vengeance seeps in deeper and deeper and starts to transform and destroy and mess up what God created to be good. Good was when there was peace and there was all of the things God desired in this world and a relationship with God that was centered on him, and he was defining what was good and what was evil, and he was saying that the picture was good, but then man takes this fruit and starts to decide for themselves, and all of a sudden, in this effort to gain face, to save face, to build themselves up on this platform, to make a name for themselves, one of the ways we find that it's easiest, this is where I got off track a minute ago, where we find it's easiest to build ourselves up is just by tearing other people down. If you remember, it starts at an early age. We figured it out pretty early on in life. I remember those happy days of elementary school where everything was cool and everybody was friends and we all painted together and went to the library together and went to art together and everything was cool and everybody wore play clothes and it was fun and we had a great time at recess and everybody was involved. Then all of a sudden, one year, we came to school and things just felt different. Those guys were wearing other clothes and they didn't seem as adamant about talking to me anymore and it felt weird because those were my buddies. We like went to each other's houses and hung out and I just don't feel like they're talking to me as much. And they're wearing cooler clothes, and they're talking about the cooler clothes, and I'm realizing they're wearing cooler clothes, and all of a sudden I feel like I, eh, my, cool, my clothes aren't that cool. And the, some of the things I wore that were fun, like last year, now I'm getting made fun of for that. That's kitty stuff. Why would you wear that? I, I'm not very good at basketball, and now all of a sudden they're getting kind of good at basketball, and you know, they're, you know, they start to laugh and, and joke around about how bad you are. And all of a sudden, you start to feel this separation happen, and more and more kids start to say more and more mean things. I wasn't a very good speller. I still remember even in Sunday school class as a kid, I misspelled Isaac. That's a tough word. Isaac. I, 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 I was like a board trying to write Isaac, and, I, and some of my buddies were relentless in Sunday school class even, just tearing me apart. And why do I still remember that? Because the whole sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me stuff is baloney. They hurt. But... We start to learn at an early age that if I can tear you down, I look funnier. I look cool. People will laugh with me and not at me. People will like my clothes and not like your clothes. If I can point out your flaws, I can build myself up. And it's not killing people, but it is destroying their image. And if I can find a way to drag them down, to destroy them, to disregard their value in their life, it makes me elevated. People won't pay attention to me and my flaws and my faults They'll focus in on them. And so it's not just the kids and the bullying and all the nonsense that happens in schools, which hasn't gotten better, but just worse. It keeps going on. As we get older, we start to gossip. Did you hear? We stop doing it to each other's face for a laugh. We start doing it behind each other's backs. We start talking about people and saying, did you hear what's going on? Did you hear what they're up to? Did you hear what's happening here? Did you hear the latest news? We start to share this information and tear each other's image down from a distance where it's safer. I don't have to worry about retaliation. I don't have to worry about giving them them a chance to speak back. I can do it behind their backs and tell the people all their their mess and their dirty laundry. And therefore, like we talked about that first week, we know people aren't trustworthy, and so we keep them at arm's length. And that just makes it that much easier to devalue their lives and to tear them down. It spreads out into social media. I love the culture and the, the way we've created things there where everything's safe. We can talk openly about anyone. We can talk bad about celebrities. We can talk bad about presidents. We can talk bad about anybody we want without any kind of ramifications. And we can tear down their image and tear down their image without ever having a personal conversation with them, actually never knowing what their heart is. 
but by tearing them down, I know there's people out there who agree with me who will think me great because of the words I spoke against this. There are equally a number of people who will dislike me and put angry faces on my Facebook post, but it doesn't matter because I don't know them. And they're probably just as bad as the guy I'm bad-mouthing in the first place. And again, we devalue each other and we create this separation, we create this brokenness, and sin continues to fester. We treat each other with passive-aggressive frustration. We think that if someone's wronged us, I can pay them back. I can get back at them by talking bad about them. I don't like them, so I might give them the silent treatment. There's a lot of different ways that we get wrapped up in this petty argument, this silent treatment. I'll just show them I won't go. I'll just show them I won't talk to them. I'll show them. I'll show them. We're not killing anybody. It's not that big of a deal. There's a lot of people around the world doing way worse, like Osama bin Laden's and other terrible people. There's all kinds of news about horrible people who do horrible things and get locked up in jail. And meanwhile, we're sitting back going, you know what, I hope they give them the chair. I hope they throw something at them. I hope they get locked in some cell with somebody who will teach them a lesson. But God is over here saying, do you remember what I said? I said, I get to decide what Cain's punishment is. And if anybody messes with him, if anybody thinks they can take matters into their own hands, anybody thinks they can destroy the image that I placed in that person's life and tear them down and make them less valuable than I made them, vengeance is mine seven times over. Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek and take another hit. If someone says, carry my bag, which that was a specific reference to a Roman soldier forcing someone to carry his pack for him because he was too lazy to do it. They could force someone to carry their pack a mile. Culturally, that was a really frustrating and angering thing. Very culturally divisive. And Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry their pack a mile, carry it too. Go the extra mile and the extra distance to show them love. To show them that you value them and care about them. Don't tell them what they deserve. Don't think in your mind what they deserve. You show love. Romans, Paul talks about it. Don't overcome evil with evil. Don't get revenge on your own. Don't pay back what you think someone knows, but overcome evil with good. Shower love and blessing onto that enemy in a way that heaps burning coals on their heads and drives them crazy because you're somehow different than the rest of the world because the rest of the world says my image is more important than yours and I will devalue you in any way I know how. But Jesus and God's kingdom, what is good and what was originally designed is no, I get to decide who is good. I get to decide who has value. And to be honest, Jesus even says, I will judge you the same way you judge other people. I will forgive you the same way you forgive other people. I died on a cross, not you. I died, not me, but Jesus, I'm speaking for Jesus here. (laughs) Jesus says, I died on a cross, not you. And I get to decide who that gift is for, not you. And you should be thankful that that gift is for you. Because ultimately, we are all just as much of a mess as Cain. We are all just as much of a mess as everybody else we're reading about in these scriptures. Evil has sunken into our hearts, and evil gets the best of us. And there are ways we devalue and put other people down. We might call them names that separate them out. We might disagree with their political views and then therefore separate them out and devalue them. We might disagree with just the fact how they cut their lawn. And I don't like the way they handle themselves or what they did here or what they did to their yard. Therefore, they're a terrible neighbor. And we look down on other people and devalue them because if I can talk bad enough about them, 
people will focus on how much of a mess they are and not see my brokenness. But the reality is I am just as broken and just as evil and just as messed up. And the gift of Christ Jesus was just as much for me as it is for them. And I should be thankful that it was for them because if it wasn't for them, how could it ever be for me as well? And so the question at the end of the day is, do I let anger and bitterness and jealousy and a desire to build up my own pedestal, does it let me entertain this idea of I could just be like Lamech and put myself up on a pedestal like you think you're so special, you're not, and have this condescending attitude that says you're nothing but a pipsqueak, I'll tear you down? Or do we let our guilt and frustration and anger consume us so much that we just let it tear other people down. And in our hurt and our tiredness and our frustration, we say things that we wish we hadn't said or do things we wish we hadn't done. Regardless, the fact of the matter is if we continue to die to ourselves and lose our need to be up on this pedestal, to have a name or an image built of ourselves, and we rely on Christ's image, and we trust his image, and we trust his definition of good, we will start to see the value in other people, and we will take to heart Paul's words in Romans, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but consider others better than yourselves. And when we start to take God's word to our hearts and we start to realize his heart for other people, we start to die to our own image. We start to surrender our own image and we stop looking for vengeance and revenge and ways to tear other people down and make them feel small so that we ourselves can feel better. And we start to see people's value and we chase after them with everything we have in order to love them so that they could find the same rescue and redemption in Jesus that we've been given. And so this morning we're going to have the worship team come back. We're going to sing another song to close out. And I simply want us to wrestle with that question this morning. What are the ways that I am still devaluing other people? What are the ways that I am not trusting God's goodness and his love for them? What are the ways I'm holding on to my own perspectives and my own views that make it all about me in such a way that I miss the value of other people. Because his heart and his desire is that we love others as much as we love ourselves. Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is much the same, love your neighbor. That's not just the person who lives next to the street. He used a Samaritan to help understand that concept of who my neighbor was. A Samaritan were the most despised people the Jews could have imagined. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the other law hangs on these two things. God's heart and desire is, is for us is not to tear others down and devalue their image, but to think of them on the same level as ourselves and to love them with the same kind of love sacrificially that we ourselves have been given. So if you would stand with me, we're going to pray. If you need prayer this morning, you need to, you got something heavy going on, you want us to pray over you, we would love to do that. If you want to get to know more about this Jesus who offers you this gift that you don't deserve, I'd love to introduce you. Whatever it is you need to pray over, if you need to come forward, if you need to stay there, that's fine either way. Just speak to him this morning. Father, I love you so much, and I thank you for your heart and your sacrifice for us, a gift that I myself don't deserve. I deserve the vengeance and the the retribution of so many different things I've done wrong that I, I know I've gotten off way too easy for. But Father, I thank you that your grace is bigger than what I think I deserve and that your grace is bigger than what I think everybody else deserves. And so Father, this morning I pray that you would soften our hearts and help us to recognize the ways we still let evil and anger and 
all of these feelings and emotions overwhelm our hearts so that we think poorly of other people. No matter how despicable or despised their actions, Father, they are still a child that you created in your image that you love. You hate some of the sin and the actions and the things that take hold in this world, but Father, you love your children, and you have sent us to be a, a, a tool in showing them your love and showing them your compassion and showing them your sacrifice. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be those people, and I pray that you just challenge us and show us where we're still falling short. I love you. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things.